This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Okay, good morning. Uh, <clears throat> I'm Kyuk Shin. Uh, I'm director of Walter Schorenstein uh, Asia Pacific uh, Research Center. Uh, we are a major center within FSI uh, specializing on Asia and the Pacific. Uh, it is really my honor to chair uh, this exciting panel, and I'd like to welcome all of you uh, to this uh, session. The theme of this conference, uh, as you know, is to understand the new dynamics of power and prosperity uh, in the uh, 21st century. Okay, no place is more central to this challenge than Asia and the Pacific. <coughs> While our policymakers have been you know, preoccupied with the Middle East, Asia is arguably going to have much more impact on our future. We understand this issue much better here uh, in the Silicon Valley, where our economy and culture are closely tied to Asia and the Pacific. Asia's impact, of course, goes beyond this valley. As you know, the real driver of the world economy has been Asia. You know, for instance, Asia has accounted for more than 50% of global economic growth since 1991. Increasingly, Asia's growth is not dependent on the US market anymore, but on their own domestic demand, especially in China and India. Asia is the fastest growing consumer market and intra-Asian trade is growing. While conflict seems to dominate the news from elsewhere, Asia remains relatively stable. To be sure, tensions persist and dangers remain from North Korea to Pakistan. But Asians are mainly occupied with managing the dynamic growth that is shaping the region. Today, we are witnessing a unique moment in Asian and world history. This is a time of what we have called Asia's triple rise. Three great nations that are on the rise as powers at the same time. China's rise is nothing new. It's very familiar. And India's emergence as a new dynamic power is also a staple of the business pages. Less attention is paid to Japan, Japan's resurgence emerging out of the doldrums of its last decade. Together, these three countries dominate the economic and strategic landscape. Okay, they account for three quarters of Asia's GDP. 
as a group, they now hold reserves of about $2.5 trillion. That's almost equal to the entire federal budget for 2007. China continues to grow uh, about 10% a year, and India is very close behind that. So the rise of this, these three powers in Asia pose challenges as well as create opportunities. Can all three rise simultaneously without falling into history habits of conflict? Can they create the regional architecture to maintain stability and security? And what kind of role can the United States play in this new Asia? Can we maintain partnership and alliance with all three powers or will be drawn into rivalries? So these are some of the questions that will be addressed by our distinguished panelists uh, this morning. <clears throat> it is a real pleasure and honor to have three distinguished uh, American ambassadors to China, India, and Japan. All of them <clears throat> have played a major role in shaping the American relationship to these countries. They still continue to play a major role in our policymaking uh, today. So let me briefly uh, introduce our speakers. You know, I don't think I have to make any long introduction. You know, all our speakers are very well known, and also there are detailed bio uh, in the program. Uh, let me first introduce uh, Honorable Stapleton Roy. Uh, he has distinguished career uh, for the government and serving as our ambassador to Singapore, uh, Indonesia, and then peoples of China. So he will be speaking on uh, China first. And they, that will be followed by <coughs> Ambassador Robert Blackwell, who also had a very distinguished uh, career uh, in our government. He served as Deputy Assistant to the President, Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Planning, and then serving as Ambassador uh, to India. And he will be speaking on uh, India's ascent. And finally, uh, Mr. Michael Amakost, uh, currently our colleague at the center as a Schorenstein uh, Distinguished Fellow. Uh, he served as ambassador to uh, Japan uh, and the Philippines. And he will speak on uh, Japan's uh, resurgence. Okay, so please uh, welcome our first speaker, uh, Ambassador Roy. Thank you, Professor Shin, and good morning. I am flattered to have been given the topic of China's historic rise. You will note from your programs that neither India's ascent nor Japan's resurgence are considered historic. <laughs> but I am confident that my fellow panel members will disabuse you of the notion 
that we are not dealing with three highly historic developments. Secretary Perry mentioned that we live in dangerous times. Some people say we live in interesting times. There's a term in Chinese that describes interesting times, but it really means a time of troubles. For the purposes of this panel, I think it's fair to say there are two defining characteristics of the world today. The first is the role of the United States in the unaccustomed situation of being the sole superpower. And the second is China's precipitous rise to a position of global power and influence. In a sense, we're witnessing a high-stakes competition between two different approaches to governance. On the one hand is a wealthy, powerful, and yes, self-indulgent United States whose principal articulated long-term goal is to remain the sole superpower for as long as possible. On the other is a rising, determined, and focused China that has set ambitious goals for increasing its wealth and power and raising the country to the level of a moderate income European country within a couple of decades. How this competition plays itself out will determine to an important degree the future of the world. These issues pose some very important questions to which there are no answers yet. Is it feasible or desirable for the United States to sustain its position as the sole superpower? And will an effort to do so bring us into inevitable conflict with the rising China? Can China's breakneck record of economic growth be sustained indefinitely? Or will China begin to stumble over the problems, domestic and international, generated by its growth? Third, can this competition be kept peaceful, or will it lead inevitably to military conflict? That's a separate question from the first one I defined, which had to do with US ambitions. This is a broader question. And finally, how will China change if it is successful in continuing to raise the living standards of its people under conditions, under conditions of continued openness to the outside world. In essence, we need to be prepared for the possibility that within the next 25 years, China will have the second largest economy in the world, significantly expanded military capabilities, and influence in East Asia and the world that is unprecedented in modern times. Here are some of the relevant considerations. China's economy today is 10 times larger than it was in 1978. It's continuing to grow at a rate of approximately 10% a year, a rate it has sustained now for over 15 years. To give you a base point for comparison, the economy of Latin America grew a total of 10% over this entire 25-year period. China is growing at 10% a year. To illustrate this point, according to the International Energy Agency's latest World Energy Outlook, the increase in China's energy demand between 2002 and 2005 was equivalent to Japan's current annual 
energy use. What the news article that I lifted this statistic from didn't mention is that Japan's energy efficiency is approximately eight times that of China, a highly relevant factor. China's rise poses fundamental challenges for the global system in general and for the United States in particular. The first is how to manage the growing resource needs and environmental impact of a rapidly developing China within a global community. The second is how to assess and respond to China's growing military capabilities, which are an inevitable aspect of a China that commands the resources of a much larger economy. The third is how to deal with the economic consequences of China's rise in terms of the impact on jobs, investment flows, and trade balances. The fourth is the impact on United States foreign policy interests of China's growing influence and heft in international affairs. We don't have time to go into all of these details, uh, all of these issues. I will only comment on various aspects of them. East Asians know well that rapid increases in power can produce inflated ambitions that lead to conflict rather than cooperation. Aware of these dangers, China's leaders have articulated a strategy of peaceful development. This strategy explicitly links as a conscious goal of national policy to preserve a peaceful international environment to promote China's modernization objectives. In my view, this is a wise and farsighted approach, but it begs the question of whether an increasingly more powerful China will continue to demonstrate restraint in defining its objectives and in using its larger capabilities. As the Cambridge historian Herbert Butterfield has pointed out, and I'm quoting, it is not always easy to say when a given state moves from an originally defensive policy and then from a reasonable demand for securities to aggrandizement. The state which at any given moment becomes strong enough to assert what it regards as its rights may go a long way in aggrandizement without feeling itself an aggressor at all. We are talking about a psychological change in countries as they gain greater powers, and certainly we saw this in our own case during our rise to great power status. Karl Deutsch made a similar observation when he pointed out that the larger and more powerful a nation is, the more its leaders, elites, and often its population increase their level of aspirations in international affairs, the more that is to say, and I'm still quoting, do they see themselves as destined or obliged to put the world's affairs in order. Now China's leaders have looked at that problem and they state confidently that China will not follow this pattern but this remains to be seen. China's future behavior, after all, will not depend simply on the intentions of its leaders. But as Karl Deutsch points out, how the elites and how the population respond to increases in power is also highly relevant. If China's population, as China grows stronger, becomes seized with nationalistic or chauvinistic impulses, the leaders will have difficulty managing that problem. And this, ironically, will be even more difficult if China becomes 
more democratic. Equally important is the question of how other countries respond to China's rise. China, presume, is successful in sustaining a policy of peaceful development. But if countries like ours, like Japan, like Russia, like India, if they respond in a hostile manner to a stronger China, that can precipitate conflict just as easily as if China itself pursues a policy of aggrandizement. As China has gained in global stature, it understandably wishes to wield greater influence over events in East Asia and the Western Pacific, to enhance its ability to defend its interests, and to gain greater assurance that formidable U.S. military capabilities cannot be used against China at acceptable cost. From China's perspective, such objectives are natural. But it's equally natural and understandable that China's neighbors and countries like the United States will increasingly worry about China's intentions as China's capabilities grow. It would be an unhealthy situation if actions which Chinese consider natural and prudent are viewed by other countries as provocative and dangerous. And yet that potential exists, and wise policy should try to address that question. I will only touch briefly on the resource questions, but they have to be kept in mind. The Asian economic miracle, you will recall, was created by the rapid economic growth of Japan and then by the four Asian tigers of South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Economies with populations totaling far less than 200 million people. But China has been growing at an equal or more rapid rate for over a decade now with a population of 1.3 billion people, over seven times larger. So the early stages of East Asia's economic rise didn't put the pressure on global resources that China's rise is creating. And we have India also rising and putting additional pressure on global resources. This is a significant problem. The Chinese now consume more grain and meat, more coal, more steel than the United States. Clearly, these, this question of resources poses stark choices for an advanced country like the United States that consumes a disproportionate share of global resources because of our high standard of living. Should we seek to hold back the growth of countries like China and India so that we can preserve our standard of living at the least cost to ourselves? Or should we seek a cooperative approach aimed at accommodating these needs through mechanisms that provide for a fair allocation of these resources? Let's take the first approach. What would the implications be if we adopted that approach for Americans' ideals and policy if it were aimed at denying other peoples the right to improve their own standards of living? If we look at the second question of a fair allocation of global resources, the question arises, are we capable of displaying the domestic will and discipline this would require within the time frame 
to make it relevant. We see no evidence as yet that American political leaders are prepared to constrain U.S. consumption patterns in order to accommodate the development needs of other countries. And yet we are facing that crunch, but we're not addressing it. These are genuine issues. The hard reality is that environmentally friendly growth is costly in the short term. It's more costly than environmentally unfriendly growth. In the long term, it may be more efficient to have environmentally friendly growth, but governments everywhere in the world have a tendency to sacrifice long-term interests to short-term interests. In the absence of any willingness by advanced countries to help finance these incremental costs of growth, it should hardly be surprising that people in countries such as China are inclined to interpret our environmental policies and even our human rights policies as motivated by a desire to slow China's growth. They look at it from a different perspective from the one we Americans take. Let me touch briefly on military factors. As China grows stronger, we see a tendency to view a more powerful and prosperous China as an emerging security threat. Two aspects of China's military development should be of particular concern to the United States. First, PLA military modernization is accelerating. China's defense budget, whether the declared one or the actual defense budget, is increasing rapidly. Secondly, China's military is preparing options for conflict in the Taiwan Strait under circumstances where the United States may be involved. That means there's conscious preparation in China's military for a potential conflict involving the United States. The heart of the challenge lies in the fact, the big context, is that China is the only country in the world today that potentially could challenge us in our position as the sole superpower. So when we look at these specific issues, you have to bear in mind that the psyche of Americans is affected by this generic concern that China's rise potentially poses a real challenge to the U.S. position in the world. At the same time, the significance of this growing military power depends ultimately on our confidence or lack of confidence in our ability to maintain constructive, friendly relations with a stronger and more prosperous China. What is too often missing in presentations concerning China's growing military strength is any context for assessing the issue. First, there's no historic context. It won't surprise you, perhaps, to learn that Chinese think of themselves as peace-loving and as the victims of aggression, not the perpetrators of aggression. Now, admittedly, their neighbors have a somewhat different view of China. But it's worth bearing in mind that China's strategists in looking at China's military needs have to bear in mind that over the last 70 years, China has been in military conflict with many of the world's most formidable military powers, including Japan, the United States, India, Russia, and Vietnam. Second, there's an absence of discussion about the external considerations that affect China's determination of what military capability it needs, other than occasional references to the Taiwan Straits. Leaving aside the Taiwan factor, which is a factor in China's 
rapid increase in its military capabilities, the demonstrated prowess of US military technology in two wars in Iraq has affected military establishments everywhere in the world. You can't fight modern wars successfully against countries with superior military technology. The US deployment of a missile defense system also has a potential impact on China's own strategic deterrence. These are factors China has to take into account. Thirdly, one rarely sees any effort to calculate what size of defense budget would be appropriate for China. You can't say China spends too much on defense without defining what enough is on defense. Don't forget, China is surrounded by major powers, nuclear powers. The two aspirant nuclear powers, North Korea and Iran, are right around China's borders. And it's a dangerous neighborhood. China, like the United States, also has enormous land and sea borders to defend. Fourth, discussions of China's defense spending routinely fail to provide any context in terms of what other countries are doing on defense spending and how this may impact on China's defense calculations. How many Americans go around recognizing that Japan has a truly formidable military capability? It doesn't have nuclear weapons, it doesn't have intercontinental ballistic missiles, but in terms of conventional military capabilities, China and Japan are roughly comparable. Fifth, the analyses often reduce the quality of China's defense decision-making to a simplistic level. Here's a country that by any standard is far weaker than the United States, that will remain so for the indefinite future, and that has set a 20 to 30 year goal of concentrating on economic development so it can reach moderate developed status. And yet this country, in the minds of some analysts, is led by leaders who are prepared to sacrifice these economic gains by rashly risking military conflict with global military titans. Do you really think that that's the way? Is China spoiling for a fight from a position of weakness with stronger countries? The answer is no. And yet you can see that implicit assumption in many of the assumptions about China's likely behavior patterns in the near future. All this is disturbing, not because we shouldn't be concerned about China's rising defense spending. We should be, for the reasons I've pointed out. But the issues require intelligent discussion. And the danger is that unbalanced presentations will affect the way that United States opinion molders look at the US-China relationship, and that could adversely affect the outlook and the public support for our relationship with China. I touched on the question of China's rapid economic growth and how it may affect the political environment in China. Let me simply outline you a case for optimism without predicting a favorable outcome. Here are the considerations to keep in mind. China's rapid economic growth has produced a sizable middle class in the coastal areas. China's society is much more open than in the past. China's dependence on the outside world has grown immensely. Elsewhere in Asia, authoritarian governments that have remained open to the outside world and have been active participants in the global economic system have, without exception, 
given way to representative forms of governance after 30 to 40 years of rapid economic development. China is only partway along that path. China's fifth generation leaders, the ones who will come in in 2012, five years from now, is the first generation who reached political maturity during China's period of openness to the outside world. They have different attitudes from earlier generations of China's leaders. China's top priority goal is modernization. And we're in a historic period in the world when modern governments everywhere in the world have democratic systems and market economies. So all of the external forces of modernization that influence China's development pattern point in the direction of movement toward the model of modern countries. Finally, within the boundaries of greater China as defined by Beijing, you don't have one system of government, you have three. And two of them, those in Taiwan and those in Hong Kong and Macau, are more democratic than the system on the mainland, and residents of the mainland know this. So you have internal reasons for China to want to move away from the current domestic structures they have. These factors do not make political liberalization in China inevitable. China is going to develop in its own way. But pessimists about China have been consistently wrong for the last quarter century, and pessimists about political change in China I suspect, are going to be equally wrong. Let me wind up. What the debate about China illustrates is that much of the time, we can't even agree on the nature of the country we are talking about. We see in China what we choose to see. You want to see a China that's going to be a challenge to the United States, you can find evidence for it. And if you want to see a China that feels its future depends on good relations with the United States, you can find plenty of evidence for that. This is dangerous because the issues generated by China's rise ultimately involve the global balance of power, US interests in East Asia, questions of war and peace, and arguably the health of the US economy. That's why it's so important for Americans to be as informed as possible about developments in China because only then can we have soundly based expectations. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, it's a delight to be here and especially in the presence of uh, Bill Perry and, and uh, Warren Christopher, uh, great Americans, great uh, patriots. I must say, uh, every time I come out here, I wonder why I spent 14 years at this rather minor university you may have heard of in Cambridge, Massachusetts, <laughs> instead of being out here. I remember George Schultz once was trying in a uh, rare slip of his judgment to recruit me to come out here, and he said, Bob, it doesn't snow here. Are there any of these words you do not understand? <laughs> and I am reminded of that, of that line which you've heard, which is if the pilgrims had landed in California, New England would be a rocky wilderness park. Uh, anyway, it's great to be here in uh, this uh, uh, beauty, uh, which I know you live with every day, and I envy you. 
Um, I noticed on the program that I'm supposed to speak on India's ascent, and uh, my good friend Shashi Tharoor is speaking at lunchtime on the rise of India as a great power, which of course those two titles sound suspiciously alike. And it did remind me of what the director at La Scala once said to a young Italian tenor, which was, never sing the same aria on the same day at the same place as Pavarotti. So I'm going to talk about U.S.-India relations, which of course will encounter the question of the rise of India as a great power. Uh, but I think that will be a nice bookends with me talking about the United States and India and uh, Shashi talking about the rise of India as a great power more broadly. And you're going to enjoy him. It's just an extraordinary renaissance human being. Um, I just start with this chapeau, uh, and it's a dramatic fact, that the only democracy in the world with which the United States had endemically persistent bad relations for, uh, f during the Cold War was India, the only democracy where we had bad relations. And that uh, happily has changed. Um, let me just start by reminding us how far we've come in this relationship in recent years. Uh, first, and most of what I'm about to say now has to do with uh, the American administration perspective on India's nuclear weapons programs. Uh, first, we've stopped badgering India about its nuclear weapons programs. Uh, we've stopped lecturing India about joining the Non-Proliferation Treaty. We've stopped demanding that India uh, sign the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. All U.S. sanctions, uh, coercive sanctions against India uh, related to its nuclear weapons program have been removed, including uh, sanctions which prevented dozens of Indian high-tech companies from doing business with their American counterparts. Uh, we have stopped protesting Indian missile tests. Uh, when I arrived as ambassador to India in August of 2001, we had for several years routinely protested uh, all Indian missile tests, uh, but not those of the Chinese. I think that's in the say what category. Uh, and that was true even when a senior PLA general threatened a Chinese nuclear attack on Los Angeles. Uh, in addition now, both the last two Indian governments, the BJP-led coalition and now the Congress-led coalition, have committed themselves to this transformed relationship. Uh, in Washington, where I live, uh, discussion is now common about the ringing promise of U.S. relations with India over the long term and in the context of India's arising great power. Uh, this is strongly advocated uh, by large majorities on both sides of the political aisle and indeed by all the major presidential candidates, both Democrat and Republican. So there's a very broad now bipartisan uh, support uh, for this transformation of U.S.-India uh, relations. Uh, uh, in the last uh, two years, this relationship has centered uh, as many of you know, on an agreement between the United States and India on civil nuclear uh, cooperation, uh, which passed by an overwhelming majority in both houses uh, of Congress. 
Uh, 51 in the House voted against it, and it was unanimously approved in the Senate. It's now, and we can get into this if you wish in the question period, it's now in uh, suspense uh, for an improbable reason, at least nobody predicted it, because of Indian domestic politics. Uh, and we'll see if it, uh, in fact, will emerge from that and, uh, and be uh, approved. Uh, it'll be a major setback uh, to the bilateral relationship if it is not, but it will only slow the trends that I'm going to be describing today in the uh, U.S.-India relationship and uh, not uh, end them. Uh, I think that the only development that would uh, reverse the trends would be a return by an American administration to the policies of uh, direct opposition to India's nuclear weapons program and a return to those themes that I mentioned have been absent in recent years. Uh, put it perhaps more vividly, if we were to, were to return to be nagging nannies uh, with respect to India, uh, this is a, uh, a country with a civilization that is about 4,000 years old or so, and which has a 300-year colonial experience in which folks from across the sea told it what to do. So they don't have too much tolerance for American lecturing about how they should behave. By the way, there are many other countries that are in that category. Um, well, um, there's much work to be done, and I'll say something controversial here. Be interested in what State thinks about it, and Mike and others. But uh, in my own judgment, uh, India's nuclear weapons are a stabilizing factor in the international system uh, for uh, reasons that really have to do with the balance of power in Asia. Uh, but to put, be put uh, simply, it's not clear to me why it would be in America's interest for China to, to possess dominating nuclear superiority over democratic India uh, in the coming uh, decades. Well, uh, in some uh, very great progress in recent years supported uh, by both sides of the aisle, uh, and that continues to be the case in Washington today. Now, uh, because of these changes, we've been able to focus on our uh, largely over overlapping vital national interests with the United States and India, which were obscured in all those decades because of our bad bilateral relationship. And I'll just mention them, one could talk about them at length. But they are, of course, uh, the fight against international terrorism. India. Uh, since uh, the 1990s has lost about 50,000 uh, victims of terrorism, mostly in Kashmir, but not entirely in Kashmir. Uh, and uh, they regarded after 9-11, I was, of course, ambassador in India uh, on that uh, terrible day, um, they regarded uh, U.S. policy as it evolved after 9-11 with regard to terrorism as joining their uh, fight against terrorism, which they've been conducting for a decade and not uh, they're joining us in our newly uh, new preoccupation with the subject. Second, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, if you read the original Osama bin Laden assault on the international system after 9-11, India figures prominently. And if there were, as Bill Perry was describing earlier today, uh, a, uh, a situation in which a terrorist organization, Islamic extremist terrorist organization, were to acquire fissile material sufficient to detonate a weapon, a bomb, 
perhaps Washington would be uh, the first uh, target of preference, and maybe Tel Aviv the second, but uh, Bombay and, uh, and uh, New Delhi would also be discussed in those dark rooms where people would have such exchanges. The third, uh, the third uh, uh, nearly congruent vital national interest it has to do with the rise of Chinese power that uh, Stape was just talking about. Uh, let me just stress here that uh, we're not talking about containing China, where there's no faster way to clear a drawing room in New Delhi than to start talking about containing China. But uh, the uh, Indians are equally preoccupied as we are uh, with respect to what kind of China will emerge in the international system. And what they want to do is uh, what uh, Stape has described, which is have a sensible policy to try to help shape uh, China's uh, role in the world. The fourth is energy security. Uh, the uh, Indians are deeply dependent on external sources of energy, especially from the Gulf. Uh, again, I don't have time to go into this, but a parlor game that I'll leave with you. Uh, you don't win a washing machine and a dryer here if you get it right. But guess how far it is from New York to Doha, from London to Doha, from Moscow to Doha, I'm taking this to the Gulf, clearly, and from Bombay to Doha. And it turns out that it's uh, 1,500 miles from Bombay to Doha, which we don't think of that because we don't look at the map like that. Four million Indians live in the Persian Gulf area and India's on its way to a blue water navy with perhaps as many as four aircraft carriers by 2020. Managing the global economy we share, and then finally, and uh, not last uh, by any means, uh, our shared democratic values. This is a great democracy. Uh, so if you take all those together, we have a concentration of vital national interests and democratic values, uh, which will keep us uh, in uh, close cooperation as the years go by. Now I'd like to just talk about particular issues in the relationship, and I'll do this very quickly to get to the question and comment period, uh, but I'll just uh, run through them quickly. First is U.S.-India defense cooperation, which has uh, been uh, in the last five or six years in terms of cooperation between our militaries, a great success story. Uh, but we're now at the point where we will uh, find whether India will make big defense purchases from the United States, which, of course, is never done before. And uh, we'll see uh, this uh, discussion is centered on uh, the uh, next generation of Indian air, uh, combat aircraft, where they're going to buy 120-some uh, for uh, aircraft, but probably in the end closer to 200 and both Lockheed Martin and Boeing are very much in that competition. Uh, and of course, we build the best air combat airplanes in the world, and our technology is better, but there's a big question about our reliability as a supplier, what George Shultz calls the problem of light switch diplomacy, where we turn our, uh, our, uh, our military uh, cooperation on and off. But anyway, we'll see how that turns out. Uh, second is Pakistan, and uh, here, uh, just say a word about how India sees this. Uh, 
First, a fact, uh, relations between India and Pakistan are better today than at any time since partition. And this is, importantly, it's been done over two Indian governments and entirely during the period of Musharraf as head of Pakistan. And so the Indians are less enthusiastic than some others about uh, an early exit from Musharraf since he represents for them a Pakistani leader who has been uniquely willing to try to find a peaceful solution uh, to the problem of Kashmir. And then also, of course, they have a passing preoccupation with those uh, dozens and dozens of nuclear weapons that are in Pakistan and how they might be affected uh, by uh, chaos in the country. And so they've been very careful in their public statements about Pakistan. Uh, India doesn't like to be lectured about uh, its external policies. It also doesn't comment much on developments internally in other countries, just as a matter of principle. Uh, but uh, uh, it's very preoccupied with Pakistan today. And I'll just add this point. My own analytical judgment is nobody knows what's going to happen in Pakistan this afternoon. Not to say tomorrow. Nobody knows. Although the pundits will be on television hypothesizing. Um, next, uh, the United States, India, and Afghanistan, as Bill said, and I just want to uh, reinforce this point, uh, the trends in Afghanistan are very grim and worrisome. Uh, we're about to have the snows in the mountains, so it'll be okay through the winter, but we'll probably have a, uh, a big uh, Taliban offensive in the spring, uh, essentially uh, logistically uh, sent forward through its sanctuaries in Pakistan. So uh, here again, uh, India uh, wishes to play a much greater role than the United States has so far permitted in Afghanistan. Of course, it has thousands of years of interaction with Afghanistan. I can't, uh, I can't fail to mention Jajwant Singh, who in a way was the George Shultz of India. He was the, he was the foreign minister, the defense minister, and the treasury minister uh, successfully, uh, said to me in 2003, you Americans seem to think that Afghanistan is a scone, it is a baklava, many layers. And I guess we're, uh, we're finding that out. Uh, but uh, in my own judgment, we should uh, encourage India to play a bigger role uh, in Afghanistan than so far we've done. Uh, Iran, again, uh, this is an issue of uh, India uh, and its civilizational links to Iran, which go back for 4,000 years, and its unwillingness to seem to be uh, the lapdog of the Americans on any issue, but especially this one. And this is very controversial in our own Congress, uh, especially a pipeline that's been discussed between uh, Iran and India via Pakistan. Um, and uh, this is an issue which could lead to serious differences between uh, Washington and New Delhi, especially next year uh, when we're likely to have uh, uh, a, uh, an escalation in the tension between Tehran and Washington over uh, Iran's nuclear weapons program. Uh, now, um, these issues that I've described, and especially the ones having to do with the greater Middle East, are, uh, of course, uh, closely related to the war on terror and Islamic extremism. And there I just point out, uh, 
India has the second largest Muslim population in the world after Indonesia, and it has the second largest Shia population after Iran. And so far, uh, Indian, India's Muslims have not been radicalized in any uh, number, although there are the odd terrorist attacks, but they're very preoccupied about uh, what effect the global rise of Islamic extremism will have on India. Uh, I'll give you just one example. Uh, there uh, were no, no Indians who joined uh, Osama bin Laden before September 11th in uh, Afghanistan, in Al-Qaeda. Not one. By the way, they had a better record than the Americans. We had one. They had zero. Uh, but they're worried about the future. And they're very worried about what they regard, and I personally also regard, as, as America's, uh, so far, uh, incapacity to speak to the Muslim world in a way that helps rather than hurts this problem. And I think this is a bipartisan confusion, if I may put it by like that, in, in the United States. But the Indians uh, are concerned about our rhetoric uh, in that regard. China, I said something about it earlier, uh, it will bring the United States and India together, again, not uh, in containment, but just trying to understand these developments in China and uh, also uh, to help shape them. Uh, just uh, uh, a point, uh, Indian defense policy now, in the long term, its doctrine, its weapons purchases, its, uh, its operations, its intelligence, are all uh, directed toward China and Chinese contingencies. They think they will brush aside Pakistan as they've done before, uh, this is not to say they are eager for such a military confrontation, um, uh, quite the contrary, and they are working very hard, the Indian politicians, to avoid it, but this is the contingency they worry uh, most about. Uh, Japan, there is a uh, burgeoning relationship between India and Japan, again because of the rise of Chinese power, uh, and I would expect that uh, to continue. Uh, in Southeast Asia, I just put this, uh, this thing, is that, again, India, as you know, has ancient ties to Southeast Asia. If you've been there to see the Hindu temples uh, throughout Southeast Asia, they haven't engaged very much so far uh, because they're preoccupied in their neighborhood. If you think of their neighborhood, <laughs> they're in a tough neighborhood. They have Nepal with its problems on the north, Sri Lanka and its civil war on the south, Pakistan on the west and Bangladesh on the east. Uh, one of one senior Indian policymaker once asked if technology was uh, was evolving rapidly enough that India could change where it is geographically on the globe to take care of that. But uh, Southeast Asia, they're concerned about the rise of Chinese influence in Southeast Asia. And a point that's been made earlier and probably will be made by many of you in the discussions you're going to have is a worry uh, by Indians that our fixation on the Middle East is weakening our position in Asia. Uh, and uh, uh, one hears that all the time. All right. Finally, I just do want to say uh, a word about climate change. And I think that what State Roy said about uh, 
about China is also true about India uh, in this sense. Uh, today in India, uh, depending on how you count them and the numbers are soft, there are probably 400 million people who make less than $1.50 a day. These numbers are staggering, 450 million. And so any discussion with them about uh, climate change, which seems to suggest that their rate of economic growth will be affected, you can forget about it. This is a democracy, and no Indian politicians will get reelected if they start talking like that. And the problem, and uh, I'll get to uh, uh, this point on the civil nuclear deal, they want to build in India uh, by 2020 between 15 and 20 new nuclear reactors, which they can't do without this agreement. And in the absence of those, they'll burn dirty coal, and they have a lot of dirty coal. So uh, on climate change, that's going to be a tough argument to make, but as we all know, it's crucial to try to bring them and China into this discussion in a positive way. Okay, uh, heading for the finish line here. Uh, what might slow down the relationship? I've mentioned one thing, which would be a return uh, to uh, an American hectoring policy toward India's nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, to have the kind of breakthroughs I'm talking about uh, will, uh, uh, will require new patterns of bureaucratic behavior in both New Delhi and Washington. Uh, as we know, civil servants want to do tomorrow what they did today and want to do today what they did yesterday. And that's one of the strengths of the permanent government. But it doesn't produce, as Henry Kissinger and others have pointed out, uh, conceptual breakthroughs of the kind that we've had in the U.S.-India relationship, but it's pretty shallow in both places at the, from the top and hasn't been digested by uh, the, most of the rest of the permanent government in either capital. Moreover, uh, as we've seen in India in recent months, there are deep suspicions about the United States in India's leftist political parties. It has three uh, serious communist political parties and two of the states... Uh, uh, in India are run by communist governments, and so that isn't going to change. Uh, third, uh, we Americans are hardly the champions of international uh, consultation and coordination, and again, I think this is true of, uh, of whoever's in the White House, and the, and the Indians are extremely sensitive about getting told things after we've decided them. Um, the Europeans maybe during the Cold War got used to it, but the Indians are not used to it. Uh, and uh, they would, uh, uh, they'd, pre they'd uh, prefer a real consultation. Um, and then finally, finally, uh, we're in, uh, of course, within a year of our own election, and uh, there will probably be an election in India uh, during the same period. It's not clear exactly when, sp spring or fall. So we'll have new... In 2009, we'll have new governments in both uh, capitals. And I think, uh, with the exception of the uh, civil nuclear agreement, that we're not going to have any major breakthroughs in the relationship, new ones, in the next year as this government and the one, uh, the government of Washington, the one in New Delhi, head for their final days in office. There just isn't energy for it. There's not the political will for it. But I hope very much that when there are new governments in both capitals, uh, whoever uh, is leading them will have another surge because, as uh, Prime Minister Vajpayee said uh, before the American 
Congress uh, five years ago, the United States and India are natural allies. Thank you very much. stands between you and a vigorous discussion, so I will be brief. It's customary uh, for Americans to start presentations with a joke. For Japanese, they're more inclined to start with an apology, and so I will apologize for not having an appropriate joke. <laughs> I also uh, want to modify my subject. Uh, resurgent Japan probably overstates the matter. Happily, Japan has resumed a solid, if unspectacular, growth track. I've just uh, come back last night from 10 days in Japan. It's a very comfortable place. I don't sense uh, resurgence. It isn't raising new demands on the international system. It does not inspire fear or awe. Its people do not uh, seek ambitious external objectives. They yearn for respect, and the country wants a permanent seat in the UN Security Council, which it uh, certainly deserves. But uh, by and large, it is represented in this panel because you can't talk about Asia and focus attention merely on countries that are growing extremely rapidly because Japan, after all, has an economy that is four times the size of China. Even with 2% growth, it can produce an annual, annual increment to its output that exceeds that of its neighbor. It confines its military budget to 1% of GDP, but with that, it has the third or fourth largest military budget in the world, and certainly the most sophisticated military technology in Asia. Sometimes Japan is described as a middle power, or having the reflexes of a middle power, more inclined to minimize risk than to maximize achievement. But it certainly has the resources of a great power. It has a huge aid program. It has gigantic foreign exchange reserves. It has wonderful science and technology. Its investment flows are huge. And therefore, it is a major player. People, I think, in Asia perhaps think of it as resurgent because they've seen a major change in its security role. This is not a new phenomenon. It goes back at least 15 years. When the Cold War ended, so did our Cold War deal. During the Cold War, when over-the-horizon security problems loomed for Japan, we generally took care of them. And when we pressed for compensation, Japan increased the financial support for U.S. troops stationed in Japan. And that didn't wash in a post-Cold War world. Japan, meanwhile, looked around and noticed they were living in a pretty tough neighborhood. China is growing rapidly. The North Koreans harbor nuclear ambitions. And the U.S. is increasingly preoccupied with areas quite remote from Japan, the first in Europe and more recently in the Middle East. And therefore, they began a careful and quite thorough re-examination of a number of self-imposed limits on their own defense and security policy. For 50 years, Japan had abjured all overseas security responsibilities. 
It had dispatched no self-defense forces abroad. It had not included in its military budget funds for power projection capabilities. It had religiously observed uh, the no, no military uses in outer space uh, policy. They had shared military technology only to a modest degree with the United States. They exported no military equipment. They regularly reaffirmed non-nuclear principles. They procured no offensive weapons. The uh, Constitution was a kind of taboo issue. And that, of course, has changed. Uh, over 15 years, they have uh, become, in effect, an offshore supplier of non-combat, logistic, and other services to UN-authorized peacekeeping uh, ventures and an occasional U.S. coalition of the willing. They have uh, been refueling American vessels uh, supporting the Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. They did send troops for reconstruction purposes to Iraq. They have put money in the budget for helicopter carriers, aer aerial refueling tankers, longer range to transport aircraft. They have sent their own surveillance satellites aloft. In the uh, context of a joint ballistic missile defense program, they are sharing technology and exporting equipment uh, to us. They have uh, undertaken a robust discussion of the revision of their constitution. Now this leaves uh, some of the self-imposed limits untouched. Uh, the budget is still about 1% of GDP. They still are not procuring uh, offensive weapons. They have emphatically reaffirmed the non-nuclear principles. Now we in America look at the changes that have taken place as welcome changes. And they are. They make our alliance more balanced they make our alliance more global. They make our alliance more operational. Some in Asia look at it with somewhat greater wariness because these changes have taken place against the backdrop of rising nationalism in Japan and until recently deteriorating relations between Japan and its immediate neighbors in China and Korea. And they have been more conscious of history and therefore are uh, evaluating the trajectory of change against uh, what they've seen in the past. So one question would be, uh, are the anxieties of some of Japan's neighbors warranted? And I think not. Uh, to be sure, Japan is assuming a more uh, robust international role. They're sending uh, forces abroad. But they're doing so mainly under UN auspices, and they're doing so uh, to perform non-combat role. Indeed, the rules of engagement that apply to Japanese troops abroad are so restrictive that the troops that were dispatched to Iraq had to be protected by Aussie forces. Uh, these, are, these are matters of great uh, political uh, moment in Japan. Second, the logistic support that has been provided us in the, in the Indian Ocean has actually been suspended since October 31st because of the political developments that pit the Liberal Democratic Party with a majority in the lower house against the opposition party, the Japan Democratic Party, which has a controlling majority in the upper house. 
And the leader of that party has said that Japan should be willing to take on international roles, but only as authorized by the UN Security Council. This would have the odd effect of subordinating the alliance to decisions of the Security Council in which China, a potential rival, would exercise a veto. But it suggests, I think, the limitations on Japan's taking on a truly ambitious role. Japan has resumed a growth track, uh, and it's a pretty impressive growth track when you figure that the labor force is declining. So 2% growth is equivalent probably 3% growth here, since we have about 1% increase in our labor force annually. But public finance problems in Japan are sufficiently severe. The public debt is 150% of GDP, that it's very difficult to imagine massive spending for defense in the absence of a genuine national emergency. Beyond this, there are the real constraints on future growth that arise from demographic factors. As I say, the labor force, the whole population, has begun to decline, and it is aging very rapidly. And while constitutional change is on the agenda, it is proceeding slowly. And I think uh, if you look at the upper house elections in July, Mr. Abe was the champion of a quite nationalist agenda, and yet it didn't fit very comfortably with the public mood, and he suffered a, a very spectacular defeat. So my point is that uh, there are changes that are taking place, and they could go further depending upon developments in Asia, particularly in China, and in the United States policy toward the region. But there are major constraints, and this will continue to unfold, as Henry Kissinger likes to say, uh, through the subtle accumulation of nuance, rather than these uh, drastic changes that people sometimes worry about. I suppose one might ask the other question, how does this bear on the future of the U.S. alliance? Uh, if Mr. Ozawa's uh, uh, idea of subordinating the alliance to the Security Council uh, holds up or enjoys majority support, that would be a huge problem for us. But I think you need just to remember that uh, the geopolitically, the rise of China and the threat from North Korea appeals to most Japanese as a solid reason for keeping the alliance in good working order because it's an insurance policy that carries a relatively modest premium. There are a host of problems that we must deal with. I won't deal with them now. I'll just mention one is host nation support. Uh, the Japanese are helping finance a major movement of Marines from Okinawa, uh, the main islands uh, and Okinawa to Guam over the next five, six, seven years. Uh, the host nation support that has been in existence is therefore challenged by their treasury as uh, appropriate for some reductions, and that'll be an issue. We don't see eye to eye entirely on how to deal with North Korea. The Japanese are worried about abductees, and they want to be sure that we pay proper attention to that issue as we move forward on denuclearization. So there's a potential for disconnect on that issue. Uh, the special measures legislation that allows logistics support in the Indian Ocean having been suspended, and we need to find some way of uh, resuming that. These are all issues, in my judgment, which with the modicum of goodwill on both sides can be readily managed, but they're an indication that it's not entirely a trouble-free relationship. I think looking forward, we should expect the alliance to continue to flourish, 
but also expect the Japanese will want to hedge their bets, like most countries do. They won't want to become the UK of East Asia. They're not going to be first to raise their hand to join the US in combat operations overseas. They will want to balance strong ties with the US with strong ties with their Asian neighbors, including China. They will work to promote constructive relations with the other major powers to reduce their dependence upon us. They will seek to compete with the Chinese for leadership in pan-Asian regional community building efforts. And they'll do what is necessary in their relations with the United States to avoid abandonment bias while at the same time hoping to avoid being entrapped in struggles that uh, we pursue and they feel their interests are not directly engaged. So I think all in all, I look at the relationship uh, as a comfortable one, a comfortable country, a, a country that is doing well and should not be forgotten as we focus so much attention on China and India. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, you know, we have a lot of issues uh, to talk uh, at the table. Uh, before uh, opening to the floor, I'd like to make uh, one follow-up question uh, to each uh, speaker, and then I will open uh, to, the, you know, to the floor. Okay, my question to uh, Ambassador Loy uh, is that uh, a lot of people are saying that China's rise is historic. But if you look at history, or historically, China had been in a hegemonic power for a long time uh, in the region. So I guess the uh, you know, question is uh, whether China will contend with uh, peaceful development, or they will pursue again becoming hege hegemonic power in the region. Could you comment on that? Uh? I touched on that question in my remarks. Mm -hmm. I think that Chinese, China's leaders have looked at the issue and decided that they cannot successfully become a stronger country unless they take into account the fact that other countries will be concerned about China's hegemonic role in the past. So they are consciously seeking to avoid it. The problem is they may be underestimating the difficulty of that challenge because of the psychological impact on the Chinese people of growing capabilities. And secondly, there is the behavior patterns of other countries. Uh, we Americans need to think about how do we exercise our power in the world and are we setting a good example for China as it becomes stronger? If we set a bad example, it will be much more difficult for China to avoid following a similar pattern. We saw this in Japan's rise during the 19th century, where it was consciously emulating the behavior of the great powers mm -hmm. at the time, and that led it into a disastrous pattern of, uh, of, of development. So I think that the good thing is that China are aware of the problem. The issue for concern is can they handle it? Thank you. Uh, this question to uh, Ambassador Blackwell. Uh, when you travel to other parts of the world, especially in Asia, uh, I think many people wonder uh, whether we have a double standard in our policy uh, towards nuclear programs in other countries. 
because uh, on the one hand, uh, you know, for maybe India, Pakistan, we are quite understanding and accommodating, I guess. But uh, for other countries like you know, Iran, North Korea, or you know, Iraq, uh, we have much tougher policy. So do we really have uh, double standards in our policy towards uh, nuclear programs in other countries? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, I guess this is the one. Um, so let me just uh, say why this, this issue, which is a good one to raise, uh, was debated at great length in our Congress for several months as they considered uh, making an exception for India to allow it to enter the civil nuclear uh, family, global family, even though uh, it uh, was not a signatory of the NPT and so forth. So why, why did the Congress come to that view? Well, uh, let me just go through them, and it relates uh, closely to your question. First, uh, India has an exemplary record of protecting its nuclear technology, unlike Pakistan. And uh, I think it would be more accurate to say that the United States has come to terms with the fact that Pakistan has nuclear weapons but it certainly uh, gains no comfort for that given AQ Khan and the export of this sensitive technology uh, in a systemic way by uh, Pakistan. Second, um, there is a judgment that uh, uh, the uh, exception for India will not affect calculations in either Tehran or Pyongyang. That is to say that their nuclear ambitions are being driven not by the NPT theology, but by their perception of their own vital national interests. And it is worth, uh, this is where the double standard comes in, it is worth noting that uh, India is a democracy and it is absolutely uh, uh, unbelievable to imagine that the United States and India would ever come into uh, military confrontation. Uh, Iran is proudly a revolutionary Islamic regime. It's a state sponsor of terrorism. It has hegemonic ambitions in the Gulf. It intervenes in Iraq, in Lebanon, and so forth. So these are hardly parallel. Uh, next, and I'm almost finished, there is the issue I mentioned before about energy uh, and India's desperate need for more energy in the context of this extraordinary growth and more nuclear energy. And, uh, uh, without uh, this agreement, uh, it will go on producing its own indigenous uh, inefficient reactors in small numbers. So much dirty coal, much more global warming. But the last thing to say, which is not mentioned in the debate between, uh, uh, by governments in either New Delhi or Washington, uh, is this, at least in my judgment, fact. Uh, the, U.S.-India Civil Nuclear Agreement was such a radical proposition, uh, uh, breathtakingly radical proposition, bringing India in out of the, the cold, the nuclear cold, after three decades in which America led the effort to make it a pariah. It would not have happened without the rise of Chinese power. And uh, that is not mentioned in any of the debates in Washington because, of course, that's a deeply offensive thought to China. Mm -hmm. But in both New Delhi and in Washington, uh, uh, this is Bankwell's ghost at the table. And as I say, uh, it's not mentioned, but I don't believe uh, that 
the support in uh, either capital this idea has gotten, and especially in Washington, would have occurred without the rise of uh, Chinese power. Thank you. Uh, finally, this question to uh, Ambassador Amakos, but also I'll invite uh, comments from other speakers as well. Uh, as you know, you know, U.S. played an uh, instrumental role in shaping uh, new order in Asia after 1945, and all of you played a key role in shaping uh, you know, order in Asia. But now, as you talked about this morning, uh, Asia is now reformulating uh, new order with rise of China, you know, India, and, and, and also coming back of Japan. But uh, we are preoccupied with uh, issues elsewhere, especially uh, in the Middle East. So my question is uh, whether U.S. now playing the proper role you know, in the process of regional order of remaking in, in Asia and what kind of role we really have to play uh, in this region. Yeah. You know, we clearly are not going to play the dominant role that we played earlier because we were in great shape and others were down as a result of the war. Uh, there, there are many powers now, and so creating the architecture for a new Asia will be shared with many others. I think uh, the things that we should be focused on, one is we do uh, play a decisive role in the balance of forces. And since we are the single superpower in the world, I've always thought one strategic objective is to dissuade others from ganging up against us. And that means cultivating operationally better relations with the other great powers than they have among themselves. Uh, it's hard sometimes, but it's not an unachievable objective. Second, uh, we've spoken about energy. We haven't done much to create new institutions, unlike the period after World War II. Energy and the environment are two issues that are felt deeply by Asians. Particularly Northeast Asia is not much, the most energy is imported and the environmental problems are huge. And yet we've found no way of addressing those problems in a systematic and orderly way. Maybe you could argue this is not a regional problem, but by the same token, the only international agency committed to this, uh, the energy side of it, is the International Energy Agency, and membership is controlled by those who belong to the OECD. So Japan and Korea are involved, but China and India are not. So at a minimum, we ought to go back and change the membership criteria so that the, the great new sources of demand are included in a potential consumer's organization. That wouldn't be a regional organization. Then I think the, the area in which the regional organizations show the biggest uh, lacuna is in, again, Northeast Asia, where you've got powerful states, you've got the legacy of the Korean War, you've got a troubled Taiwan Strait. And the Six Power Talks is focused on the denuclearization of North Korea, something that uh, troubles everybody and on which we have a shared interest. Uh, hopefully, if we can manage that problem, and I believe there has been some modest progress of late, then maybe that is embryonic, the embryonic uh, uh, sort of institution which could address larger problems in Asia, and unlike the ASEAN plus three or the East Asian summit in which we're not involved. U.S. membership would not be a contentious issue in this because it's not really possible to deal with the security problems in Northeast Asia without the U.S. being involved. So those are some things I think we ought to work harder on. So any comments you'd like? Okay. 
All right, so I'd like to now uh, open uh, to the floor, and there is a microphone, so please uh, wait uh, for that. And then when you address your question, uh, please uh, briefly identify who you are, and then also you know, specify you know, to which speaker you are addressing your question. So now it's open. Yes. Uh, Wendy Lures, FSI Advisory Board. Um, this is a question for both State Roy and also for Ambassador Armacost, looking at it from both sides. Um, I do a lot of work in Central America and Latin America, and there is a huge question from the Japanese side where they ha and the Taiwanese side um, about the support of those countries in Central America for Taiwan. And at the same time, the enormous investment that China's making uh, in Central America and also obviously in Latin America on natural resources. Can you, can you look at, at where you see this going between the, the, the Chinese interests and the Taiwanese slash Japanese interests? We Americans don't pay much attention to it, but there still is a political battle between the mainland and Taiwan going on for the residual relationships that Taiwan uh, has on a, a diplomatic basis. Uh, Latin America is one of the last places where Taiwan has a significant diplomatic presence. The battle is essentially a battle of money, resources. Uh, uh, in Africa, where there also is a uh, legacy of the battle going on, Essentially, each government is trying to buy diplomatic relations uh, through payments, investment, or whatever. Uh, so, yes, that's a very real factor. But in the grand scheme of things, it's a trivial factor. Uh, because China's investment is pouring into the Western Hemisphere and into Latin America. It's both welcomed and it's a little scary. Uh, if you watch how Brazil has reacted to it, it's both welcomed it and it's begun to put up some barriers against the Chinese getting too much ownership in, uh, in, in Brazilian industries. So that it's a, a complex pattern, an understandable pattern, if you look at how we're reacting to some of these same factors. I uh, confess the subject didn't come up in the 10 days I was in Japan, so I, I take it it may be a concern, but it's not at the top level of their concerns. I think Japan is most comfortable, clearly, with a separate Taiwan, um, though they've taken the same juridical policy as we have. I think they uh, tend to feel, as I feel, that the dangers of conflict over Taiwan have diminished somewhat, in part because the integration of the Taiwanese and mainland economy proceeds apace, in part because the United States has been more forthright with respect to both parties, uh, forthright with the Chinese, saying we'd provide all the help that's needed if they sought to militarily incorporate Taiwan, and candid with the Taiwanese and saying, if you provoke the problem, don't expect us to pull your chestnuts from the fire changes in the politics inside Taiwan 
which make it less likely that uh, any party has the wherewithal to alter the Constitution in ways that might be genuinely provocative to the Chinese. And the Chinese seem to be relying on enticement rather than overt threats. I think they're confident that in the long run things will work out fine, and so they don't see any reason to make this a, put a timeline on it. So I found a certain comfort level, but I would say the Taiwanese have done a very good job in cultivating younger Japanese politicians. So they, they have a little more clout on these issues in Japan than would have been true perhaps 15 years ago. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Terry Connolly, uh, Golden Gate University Dean of Business. This is a question for Ambassador Roy. Uh, you suggested that uh, it was probably a mistaken assumption to presume that China was spoiling for a military fight with the West or the U.S., but what about the perception in many U.S. quarters that they are trying to use their currency or their currency reserves as a weapon? Um, are, are they trying to establish a Chinese uh, as a, uh, an economic landlord for the U.S., or are they content simply to be running the world's largest uh, vendor financing business? Do people hear the question who, whether China is using its enormous foreign exchange reserves as a, as a weapon against the United States? Uh, I would say it's, it's just the opposite. Uh, uh, China is worried about having enormous reserves in a rapidly depreciating currency. Uh, one of the reasons why China has moved to establish a very sizable sovereign fund for investment abroad is because of a policy decision in Beijing, instead of sitting on tons of dollars, to uh, uh, reinvest those dollars in assets abroad perhaps in the United States, perhaps in other countries. Uh, China faces the same paradox that we face. Our economies are so interlinked now, and the nature of the interlinkages are so poorly understood that it is impossible for one country with predictable results to take actions that damage the economic interests of, or trade and investment interests, exchange rate interests of the other country without damaging yourself. Uh, uh, if, if the Chinese went through a rapid uh, appreciation of their, of their currency, if the Chinese stopped buying U.S. Treasury instruments, uh, interest rates in the United States go up, uh, whether the Fed likes it or not, uh, inflationary factors in the United States increase, uh, there are all sorts of consequences, uh, so that it's a complex relationship. The Chinese don't know how to manage that as an effective tool against the United States. They're really trying to protect themselves. Okay, let me take one more question. Yes. Uh, microphone, please. Hello, I'm Murat. I'm Robert Rorden. I'm a retired electrical engineer, and I want to comment on the missile defense system, which was mentioned twice here. Uh, I, I have worked in my career on missiles and on radar, and my belief is that the managers of the missile defense system ignored obvious ways that an enemy could defeat the system. 
one of them. The microwave energy used to locate and track the missile is absorbed and scattered by raindrops. All you need to have a rainstorm at the, at the uh, radar site and it won't work. Another simple way is to design the missile such that it uses what we call stealth technology uh, in which the radar can't see it anyway. And I can think of several others. Now these things were not discussed before we started building that $100 billion system. Uh, and uh, I would think an intelligent enemy could easily defeat what we've built for $100 billion. And I consider it a product of the military industrial congressional complex rating the U.S. Treasury. Thank you. So is it a comment or a question? <laughs> like to, Let me make a brief yeah. comment. I was a person who referred to national missile defense. I did not refer to it in terms of it's a good or a bad thing. I referred to it in terms of the impact on Chinese defense spending. Clearly, the Chinese will look at how to defeat the system, both in terms of building up their own strategic deterrent so that they can overwhelm it, or by using countermeasures. Both of those result in increases in Chinese defense spending because of actions that we are taking. Whether our system works or not is not something that I addressed. It probably will have an impact on Chinese defense spending regardless. Okay, thank you. I'm sure we have uh, more questions and issues, but uh, you know, we can address uh, throughout the day. So I think uh, one of my job is to keep time you know, on. So uh, I'd like to thank again our panelists uh, for a great presentation and your contribution. So I'm, I'm hoping that uh, we have another opportunity in the near future to talk about the three uh, you know, great powers. And before closing, I'd like to briefly thank uh, our supporters uh, for our center, because without their support, we're not able to do uh, our job. Especially, I'd like to thank uh, Mr. Walter Schoenstein uh, for your continued support. <laughs> and it has been my great pleasure to have this panel uh, at this conference, and then I hope that you enjoy uh, the rest of the day. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.